For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello all, Eric here, and welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. Just a quick reminder, if you have plans to see the film Killers of the Flower Moon, I know I do, and you need a little review beforehand, just remember that I interviewed David Gran about his book, which the film is based on, in episode number 144. All right, on to the interview. I am absolutely delighted to have Art T. Burton on the show. He spent 38 years in higher education, both as a history professor at Prairie State College and South Suburban College, and as an administrator at Benedictine University, Loyola University Chicago, and Columbia University Chicago. He has appeared in multiple documentaries on the History Channel, and he has written prolifically about the Old West, including the book he is here to talk about today, called Black Gun, Silver Star, The Life and Legend of Frontier Marshal Bass Reeves. I so appreciate you joining me today. Really great to talk to you. Well, it's my pleasure to be here with you, Eric. Thank you. So do you remember where you first heard the name Bass Reeves? <laughs> yes, I do. Um, I was about 11 years old. I was visiting my grandparents in Arcadia, Oklahoma, and I had just uh, watched a movie on their television on Wab Earp. And I knew my grandparents had come to Oklahoma during the frontier days, and I asked them if there were any African-Americans who were deputies marshals. And my grandfather told me he remembered seeing them. Uh, African-Americans who were deputy as marshals ride through Arcadia when he was a young man. And uh, I asked him, was any of them famous? And he asked my grandmother, whose name was Ida. He said, Ida, what was that U.S. marshal in Muskogee's name? And they thought for a minute. And then my grandmother said, Bass Reeves. And they didn't know very much about him, but they had heard that he had made a name for himself. And I asked my grandfather, was he like Wyatt Earp? And he said, no, he wasn't like Wyatt Earp. And in a way, he was very right about that. But uh, that was the first time. And I, I really forgot about that conversation with my grandparents for years and years. And it did come back to me later on at a certain point in time. Before you wrote your book, your goal was to write an article about Bass Reeves, right? Yeah, I, I'd been writing about the blues and jazz because I'm a jazz musician. And I had started writing in college. And uh, I wrote a column for a small newspaper here in Chicago for about 13 years. And I thought that if I got enough information on Bass Reeves, when I found out about him, I could just write an article on him, which would be nice. There wasn't a lot of information about Reeves, though, when you began your project, right? Mm -hmm. You had to find it yourself. 
Right. There was there was almost nil. There was almost no information. And the way I got involved in researching him, I was with my cousin and his former college roommate, and we were hanging out, and we were talking about the lack of African American history that had been documented. And my cousin's former college roommate stated that he was from Reeves Edition in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and it was named for Bass Reeves. And uh, that was the thing that spurred me to say, well, if I can get enough information on this guy, I'll write a column about it. And uh, I uh, told my cousins to find all the old people they could find who remembered anything about bass. And then I contacted Northeastern State University in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, which is the closest university to Muskogee, and asked them about Reeves' edition in Muskogee. And they told me they would see what they could find due to their research. And in the interim, the, my cousins found three or four older people who lived around Oklahoma City primarily. And they were telling me stories that Bass Reeves would arrest Jesse James, uh, Butch Cassie, or Billy the Kid. Uh, it was just, it just sounded facetious to me at the time. And then uh, the uh, Northeastern State University in Tahlequah sent me a, a packet, including a map of Reeves edition in Muskogee. And it was named for a white banker named Ira Reeves, who was a developer in uh, Muskogee. And I guess predominantly in recent years, it was an African-American community. And so they just thought that it was named for Bass Reeves because that's where he had died. But uh, I was about to give up the ghost on Bass Reeves, actually. And I contacted a man who owned a little museum in Denver, Colorado. His name was Mr. Stewart. And I called him up and I asked him, was there any African-Americans in the Wild West, because my curiosity had, <laughs> had got, got pinged and uh, wanted to know what he knew. And the first thing out of his mouth was Bass Reeves. And I was kind of shocked by that. And I asked him, what did he know about Bass? And he said he didn't know very much, but he said that there was a couple of older gentlemen from Oklahoma who lived in Denver. And he said that's all they talked about. And he said there's one is Reverend Haskell Shubu, who stated that Bass would walk the streets in Muskogee with a sidekick who carried a satchel full of pistols. And if somebody called his name, Bass would put his back up against the wall. And I asked him if he had a, a, any contact info for Mr. Shubu, Reverend Shubu. And he said, no, he didn't. He hadn't seen him in a couple of years. So I knew he was pretty old, so I wasn't sure if he was living or dead at that time. And I called up the operator in Denver, Colorado and asked if she had a listing for Reverend Haskell Shoeboot. And she did. And uh, I dialed the number and a lady answered the phone and I told her I'm gonna to speak to Reverend Shoeboot. And she said, just a minute. And Reverend Shoeboot got on the phone and he was very old. I could tell he was very old because he, the way he talked, he was kind of hoarse. And I told him I was trying to get information on Bass Reeves, and uh, uh, he laughed. And when he laughed, that kind of threw me off. But uh, he went on to say that Bass could outfight, outshoot, outride, outrope, outdo everything almost anybody could do. And uh, it was almost similar to the other stories I received from my cousin's contacts in Oklahoma. So I wasn't real impressed with that. And then he told me, he said, I tell you something I seen with my own eyes. And he repeated that a couple of times. And he said that he used to drive the hack for Bud Ledbetter. And I had to stop him and ask him what was the hack. And he said a hack was a one horse carriage. And Bud Ledbetter was one of the top lawmen in Indian territory at that time after the turn of the century. And, uh, Ledbetter was a white lawman. And it was very interesting. The older people I had talked to earlier had stated that Bass was arresting white folks. And I had a little problem with that because as a kid going to Oklahoma, I was very familiar with Jim Crow and how that was in place in Oklahoma at the time when I was a little kid. So I asked, uh, Schubert went on to tell me this story that he drove the hack for Bud Ledbetter. And Bud had a posse after an outlaw at Gibson Station and said it was a fairly large posse. 
And uh, I asked him who else was in the posse, and he told me there was a marshal named DePue, who I later was able to document there was a lawman named DePue who worked out in Muskogee. But he said that uh, this outlaw they was trying to catch was at Gibson Station, 12 miles north of Muskogee, and they had him kind of in a place where he was hunkered down, and they were shooting at him. And I guess the majority of the morning, they spent a lot of ammunition shooting at this man, and it wasn't hitting. And Shuboot said that Bud Ledbetter told somebody in the posse to go back to Muskogee and get Bass Reeves. And he said that Bass came on the scene toward the end of the day. The sun was starting to go down. And uh, the posse had quit shooting at the outlaw. And uh, the, I guess the outlaw made the decision. It was getting late in the day and the sun was starting to go down. He was going to make a break for it. You see, the outlaw jumped up. <laughs> when he told me the outlaw jumped up, I thought he was going to say the outlaw made jumped up and made a run for his horse to get on. You know, that's the Hollywood scenario. But he's, yeah. the outlaw started running across this field. And so that burst my Hollywood bubble. And uh, he said the posse started shooting at him and they were missing. And Buck let Bella hollered at the top of his voice, get him, Bass. And he said, Bass Reeves said, coolly and calmly, I will break his neck. And he said, Bass took his Winchester rifle at a quarter of a mile, broke this man's neck. And I had never heard nothing like that in my life because a quarter mile is basically two city blocks, 500 yards. A moving target is very, very hard to hit at 500 yards. And for Bass to call that, I thought it was the biggest lie I'd ever heard in my life. <laughs> so wow. I thanked him for the story. I wondered why he would tell me such a far-fetched story. Shubu told me he was 98 years old at that time me and him had the phone conversation. And I used to walk a mile every day. I got off the train when I worked at Loyola University at that time. So I got the story like on a Sunday and by the middle of the week, I started thinking that Shubu might be telling the truth. And I was saying to myself, if this is the truth, this is phenomenal. And so by the end of the week, I had made a determination to find out everything I could about Bass Reeves. And uh, that was the transformation for me in terms of trying to find out who Bass Reeves was. So, yeah, let's go back a little. Uh, Bass Reeves was born in Arkansas in July of 1838. He was a a slave of William Steele Reeves who was a politician uh, originally out of Tennessee, had moved to Arkansas. And Bass was born on his farm, I guess, there near Van Buren, Arkansas in 1838. And then the family moved to Texas, Grayson County, Texas, around 1846. And uh, that's where Bass came to manhood and grew up in Texas. What was life like for him early on. Did he have uh, interactions at all with William Reeves? He had more of a relationship with William's son, uh, George Reeves. Um, And George, George was uh, the tax collector and then became the sheriff for Grayson County. So Bass had to go with him everywhere he went. And prior to that, Bass had worked in the fields as a water boy when he was young. And uh, his mother was fearful because she said he would sing songs, you know, slaves made up songs in the fields. But Bass was singing about outlaws quite a bit and guns and knives and that type of thing. And she was fearful that when he grew up, he would be in some type of an outlaw. But uh, he was known to do that. And then when he got a little older, he learned how to uh, work, you know, making horseshoes and and working in the, uh, the barn with the horses doing that type of thing. And then he eventually, as he got a little older, he was made George's body servant. And uh, from what I can ascertain, he was pretty good with uh, a rifle at that time because they stated that uh, George made money off of bass in in, uh, shooting contests. 
and uh, he would put bass in shooting contests, and bass didn't lose pretty much at all. He was such a good shot with a rifle. Wow. So, you know, I was thinking, you know, Bass, theoretically, because the sheriff in Texas in 1840s, 1850s, part of their duty was to uh, catch runaway slaves. So Bass could have been with his master uh, when they had to go search for runaway slaves. So he does accompany George Reeves into battle. Right. George Reeves was a colonel in the Confederate Army. What was that experience like for Bass, do you think? Well, a body servant, basically, you had to take care of his clothing, his horse, his, his food. So they had, you know, these, these Confederate officers who had slaves, they had, you know, their official servants with them all the time. George Washington had one named Willie, who went into all the battles with George during the Revolutionary War. So, you know, and so that's what he had to do now. I don't know if he picked up a gun and, and fought with his master. I think that's part of the scenario they have in the uh, new series that's coming out. But I'm not sure Bass did that at all. He could have, but I'm, I'm not sure. And at some point, he, he parts ways with George Reeves. Yeah, the the family, uh, his family had uh, oral history in the family that stated that Bass and George was playing cards uh, one time uh, during the war, and George uh, cheated Bass, and Bass took highly offense to being cheated, and they got into an argument, and Bass proceeded to knock George out, and for a slave to hit his master in Texas was punishable by death, and so Bass left his master, and from what I can ascertain, and, and looking at the time period, I think it was probably sometime after the battle in uh, Arkansas that that took place and Bass went into the Indian Territory and served with the Union Indians during the war. And the Indian Territory was the most dangerous place probably in the Civil War (laughs) during that period because the highest percentage of loss of life, property and livestock took place in the Indian Territory. And much of the warfare was guerrilla warfare in Indian Territory. So I think Bass was involved with that. He learned the lay of the land. He learned to speak the languages. He learned uh, how to track very well. And I think he learned a, a lot of his skills during the Civil War in the Indian Territory. He, he was a big, strong guy, wasn't he? Yeah, he was six feet, two, 190 pounds. They say he could whip any two men with his bare hands. And uh, he was a master of all types of weapons to shoot with either hand. And uh, it was deadly with a pistol or rifle. So when does he become a deputy U.S. Marshal? What are his duties and where does he serve? Right. Well, uh, from what I, again, from my research, uh, it shows that he was a scout and a guide for deputy marshals initially at the Van Buren Court. The Van Buren Court took charge of uh, Western Arkansas and all the Indian Territory after the Civil War up to 1871. And then in 71, the Van Buren Court was moved to Fort Smith, Arkansas. And so uh, he did that for uh, a while, and he would have been a posse man. But he, you know, he was a scout and a guy because he knew the, the Indian languages, he knew the territory. And then in 1875, when Judge Isaac C. Parker took over the court, uh, Bass was asked to serve and they gave him a commission as a deputy as marshal. He was not the first African-American. There's a lot of uh, verbiage on the Internet saying he was the first, but he was not the first. Uh, he became the most famous. Uh, there were others that preceded him. Uh, for the Western District of Arkansas. Yeah, that that court was very interesting because the Fort Smith Court, the deputy U.S. marshals had to work out of that court and go all the way west to where Fort Seal is in Oklahoma today. They would go up to Fort Reno and sometimes as far as Fort Supply, which is near the Kansas border. Then they would go back to Fort Smith. So it was a round trip of over 400 miles uh, in the territory 
and they would take a crew, a wagon, they would take a cook, a guard, and they would have to take at least one posse man to help them uh, with the rest they'd have to make. And it would take a month to two months to go into the territory and arrest felons and people they had warrants for, and they would bring them back. And Bass became noted for bringing back 12, 15, 16, 17 prisoners at a time. Yeah, the, these wagons, right, would be outfitted with a, a long chain. Yeah, they looked like army supply wagons. They weren't wagons with steel bars on them. I know that was in uh, Hang'em High and True Grit where they had wagons with bars. And, but no, they had no bars. And so the prisoners primarily would have to walk behind the wagons and they would be chained ankle to ankle. Uh, sometimes the deputies would have a couple of wagons, and if they had a couple of wagons, they would sometimes allow prisoners to ride in the wagons. But uh, primarily, they walked across the prairie, so that's a you know could be a long trip doing that. And so the wagons also served as the base camp, and they would set up camp, and then they would go in the area to pick up the prisoners, uh, felons who had committed the crimes. And if they killed a, a felon, they they wouldn't get any money for that. So it was more important to bring them in because they get paid for reimbursement for food and, and mileage. And so if a deputy killed a outlaw, he would have to pay for and provide for the, uh, the man's uh, burial themselves. And then they'd also have to have a hearing for the killing that took place. And the money could be really good for a U.S. Marshal, especially if they were successful, of course. It, it was pretty good. The, the money was better if you found outlaws with uh, award, rewards on their head. And so the, the deputies were actually the original bounty hunters in the Indian Territory. And actually, the bounty hunter is a Hollywood invention. Basically, bounty hunters were lawmen, sheriffs, uh, deputies, marshals, uh, such that did this to uh, pad their, their, their money they got. But you had to bring people in to make good money. And so Bass made good money because he brought a lot in. So, you know, he, he, he would make sometimes upwards of $1,000 on a trip, which was a whole lot of money back then. We will be back after these brief messages. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. And we have returned. How long did it take for him to build his reputation as a master hunter? Yeah, he, he was, he was um, 
He started in 75, and I, I would say he had a rep, a real good rep by 85. So it took him about 10 years to build a real good rep, and he did that. And one of the things he would do, right, was use disguises to great effect. Yeah, he, he, um, he would disguise himself as a preacher, as a farmer, as a cowboy, as a tramp, as a criminal, anything he had to do. The Indians had taught him how to even ride a horse at distance where he wouldn't appear to be a, a big guy. He can make himself look smaller, depending on, you know, what type of horse he had. And he carried several horses. Because a lot of times a real good horse was uh, a signal that you were a deputy's marshals. And so he would have some horses that he'd ride, he would take with that would be used for disguise purposes. You know, he he thought of it all, and uh, he was very good at what he did. Actually, he was such such so good with warrants, arrest warrants, that the uh, federal office in Fort Smith started giving him subpoenas. And so, not only did he have to capture people who uh, had committed crimes, he had to find people that they wanted to testify in trial. And he did all this being illiterate; he couldn't read or write. So he used to have people read the warrants and subpoenas off to him, and he would remember them. He had total recall, uh, just a, a fascinating aspect of his career that he had this recall. Brilliant man to do that. And then he used deductive reasoning when he was uh, doing his detective work. He preceded Sherlock Holmes with deductive reasoning. Wow. So, yeah, uh, speaking of disguises. There are so many stories in your book about the various captures he makes, and obviously we don't have time to talk about all of them. Right. But there are a few stories I'd love if you could share. Sure. In one of them, he was on the hunt for two brothers, and he disguised himself as a tramp to infiltrate the family's home. Could you tell us that story? Yeah, that one uh, occurred in the Chickasaw Nation, and th these boys had a, a pretty big reward on their head. And so Vass decided that he would stop his base camp very far from where they lived, and he would walk in. He shot holes in an old hat, had some old brogans to put on, and looked as disheveled as he could, like uh, somebody on the run from the law. And uh, he knew primarily where these boys lived. And when he found the the home, they they were not there, but their mother was there. And he made a plea with her, told her he was very hungry. He was on the run from the law. And uh, she believed his story and she told him her sons were outlaws and they were also on the run. And she thought that maybe he could uh, join them in some type of uh, criminal activity. And he told her he'd be glad to. And so when they came home, the mama introduced him to the boys and they all bedded down at night. And I guess in the middle of the night, Bass was able to slip the handcuffs on them. And in the morning, he kicked them awoke and told them they were under arrest. And I believe the mama was so incensed, she followed him two or three miles, uh, crawling him every word under the sun she could think of. And uh, he took him back to his base camp and uh, he said his money's going to be pretty good. Now, I think there was like a $3,000 reward on their head, which is a lot of money at that time. And so he said, my money's going to turn green now. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> he, he did those type of things. He, he was very good at working in, in disguise. One interesting case in your book had to do with a man named Chubb Moore. Right. Uh, would you tell us about Moore's criminal past and how Reeves was able to nab him? Yeah, Chubb Moore uh, was a mixed blood chair, uh, Chickasaw. And uh, I guess the crime took place around 1879. And Chubb had led a mob in the lynching of a young black boy. And now, most of the times, racial lynchings didn't take place in any territory prior to Oklahoma statehood. 
Most time lynchings were for horse theft or cattle theft, that type of thing. They did have a few racial crimes, but this was one that occurred in 79. And uh, Chubb, I guess, was fairly able to not be arrested for the crime. And uh, I guess this black boy had supposed to been fraternizing with a white girl. And uh, I guess some of the folks didn't like that. And he was lynched by this mob and Chubb was supposed to be in the ringleader of that. And so Bass got the reward for Chubb and Chubb was arrested by Bass in 84. And there was a gunfight in, in arresting Chubb and he was wounded uh, during the arrest. And he later died at Fort Smith. They was able to take him all the way back to Fort Smith because the Chickasaw Nation is is pretty is pretty far from Fort Smith, Arkansas. It's near the western uh, Oklahoma region, and uh, Chuck did die uh, from this this gun wound he received at Bass's posse when they were arresting him. Now that's also very interesting because most of this action that takes place in the territory with these black deputies marshals, there were upwards of fifty. African American deputies marshals in the Oklahoma Indian Territory. And this is after Reconstruction. Most of the times, blacks who are hired for police work in cities and areas of the country were doing Reconstruction. But in the Western frontier, there were areas where you did find black men who were lawmen, and probably more so in the Indian Territory than anywhere. The only other place where you had found a large number of blacks would have been during Reconstruction in Texas, where the majority of the Texas state police were black and they were hated by many of the citizens of Texas. And so by 1875, the Texas Rangers were reconstituted and there were no blacks in the Texas Rangers until 1986. But what Bass did, I know for sure, was he arrested at least three or four people that had lynched black folks. And he's the only black law enforcement officer that I know of post reconstruction who arrested white folks for lynching black people. And most of the time the, the whites were not prosecuted for the crimes, but Bass did arrest them. Chubb was a little different because Chubb in arresting him, he was shot and he died at Fort Smith when they were able to bring him in. But uh, that really makes Bass very unique to arrest folks who lynch black folks during that period in American history. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So were there people who took issue with, with black men arresting white men in Indian Territory? Yeah, for sure they did. But the Indian Territory was basically under the uh, administration of Native American tribes. And so basically where Bass worked except in the far re regions where the U.S. Army, they had to interact with them at Fort Reno and Fort Seal. The five civilized tribes, as they were called, the Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw Creek, and Seminole had sovereign governments. And so their governments were supreme. And they had their own courts, their own judges, their own police, but they could not arrest a black man or a white man who was not a citizen of their nation. And if an Indian committed a crime against a black man or white man, then that's where the deputies marshals stepped in. And it was very fluid and probably the most racially integrated area of the United States in late 19th century was the Indian Territory. Uh, as the territory was finally opened up for settlement more and more after 1889, things got mousy in a lot of areas where whites weren't familiar or had seen a black lawman like they had in the Indian Territory. And there were uh, accounts where people coming in, especially from Texas, who would state uh, when they did the Indian Pioneer Papers, that was the Workers' Writers Project of 1937-38. And they gave interviews and they stated that when they came in, that they were just shocked to see these black men who had guns and was upholding federal law in the territory because where they had come from, they weren't familiar with that at all. Huh. The year 1884 was, was 
full of action and drama for Bass Reeves. He was involved in multiple fatal shootouts with outlaws. Right. And he also shot and killed his own cook. Exactly. Yeah, he, he, he accidentally shot his cook. There were stories about uh, how it happened that was not true. But Bass was not arrested for that crime until 1886. And he wasn't arrested for accidentally shooting him on manslaughter. They arrested him on first degree, you know, homicide, which was kind of unusual. But by that time, the first former Confederate U.S. Marshal was in place at Fort Smith. And that was the first time Bass worked under a former Confederate uh, officer uh, for that court. And so they brought him up on, on charges. Bass was arrested. He did six months in the Fort Smith Federal Jail before he could get his uh, bail. He was arrested in January of 86, and he didn't bail out until June of 86 and had some friends to help with the, the bail monies. And then in uh, September of 87, he was found not guilty by a uh, jury in Fort Smith. Yeah. In one of the retellings of the story, you write that there was a little dog in, in camp and the cook was annoyed by the dog begging for food. And so right. he poured hot grease down the dog's throat, which would be horrific if true, of course. And Reeves then, disgusted by the cook's action, killed him. But you say the death was accidental. Yeah, the, the true story was almost uh, totally opposite of that. Uh, Bass was mad at the cook because the cook wasn't a good cook, and he was very upset with the food that the cook was preparing. But also, there was a dog they had in camp, I guess a little puppy or some type of dog, and the cook was allowing the dog to lick the pants, and Bass got irritated by that. And uh, he told the cook he was going to shoot the dog, and the cook said he was going to shoot Bass's horse if he shot the dog. And so they, they got into the words. They was pretty. And so supposedly later on, though, Bass was trying to uh, dislodge a bullet. He had put a pistol around in his rifle and trying to pull it, the, the bullet out. The rifle went off and struck the, the cook near his neck. And uh, they said that Bass tried to get help. They tried to get a doctor. They couldn't find a doctor. And the cook didn't die immediately, but he later uh, died from that bullet wound. His name was William Leach. And uh, it was an accident. And that's what later came out in trial, that it was an accident. Uh, some of the felons who had been arrested by Bass tried to say it wasn't accidental. But uh, one of the felons' wife was on the trip. She had, had her kids with her and she was trying to follow her husband, I guess, back to Fort Smith, where he was going to stand trial. And she testified that uh, it was an accidental shooting. So that really did Bass well in terms of helping his story. So one of the more famous captures for Reeves came in April of 1890 when he brought in a notorious Seminole outlaw named Greenleaf. Right. What had Greenleaf done to make him a wanted man? And how did Reeves get him? Well, Greenleaf was noted for selling uh, whiskey. Whiskey was the most common thing. It was almost like the drug trade in America today. But uh, whiskey was illegal in Indian Territory because the United States government didn't, they felt it was a bad thing for the Native Americans to have, uh, get hold of. And many tribes had been decimated by whiskey east of the Mississippi River. Some on purpose, some not. But so they, they didn't like the effect of whiskey. So the federal government made it illegal for whiskey to be in Indian territory. So the trade in illegal whiskey was huge. Uh, Greenleaf was known to traffic in illegal whiskey. But beyond that, he was supposed to be a real bad guy. He had killed four Indians, murdered them. And he had also killed three whites. And one of the white men was a U.S. postal uh, worker who was you know, delivering mail in the territory. And he had been on the run for 17 years and nobody had been able to capture him. And Bass got the warrant for his arrest. He uh, found out where Greenleaf was living and decided that they would uh, make a move on Greenleaf early in the morning. 
So right before the sun came up, uh, Bass and his posse charged the house and they came in on Greenleaf and uh, he was asleep pretty much and told him he was under arrest. And uh, people that lived in the area were so shocked by the fact that Greenleaf was arrested. They said they came from miles and miles around to see that Greenleaf had been arrested. And uh, Bass took him into uh, Fort Smith. It was a good capture for Bass Reeves. Yeah, yeah. So what happened between Bass Reeves and Bell Star? One of the, one of the stories that seems to persist is that he tracked her down, he arrested her. Yeah, well, that's not true. <laughs> from 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 what I've been able to find in my research, he and Bell became uh, friendly to one another, and he knew her. And Bell had been arrested earlier for horse theft. Bass was not involved. But in uh, 86, I believe it is, Bass got the warrant for arrest because she was supposed to stole another horse. And I don't know how she found out. I don't know if Bass told her or somebody else told her that Bass had the warrant for arrest. But the only time that Belle Starr turned herself in at Fort Smith, Arkansas, was when Bass had the warrant for her arrest. And so he didn't arrest her per se. But she turned herself in and she came in and said she didn't want to be chased around the countryside by deputy marshals. And so she turned herself in. And actually, on that particular case, she was able to show that she had not stole the particular horse and was not uh, incarcerated for a horse theft on that particular occasion. So what is one of your favorite Bass Reeves arrest stories? And I'm sure it's hard to choose. I, I think you wrote that he made three to 4,000 arrests in his law enforcement career. Right, right. Yeah, I was, um, it's, it's kind of hard to narrow them down, but I was contacted by uh, a detective from the Houston Police Department a couple of months back. And he told me he loved my book, but he didn't see the Houston story. And I, I was a little bit inquisitive because, you know, Houston is way down at the southern end of Texas. And uh, Bass did work for the Eastern District of Texas from 93 to 97. And so this particular case that he was referring me to, because I told him to send me what he had on the case, was a case where there a murder was, was happened in, in Houston, Texas, a, a fairly wealthy uh, man that owned a boarding house. And uh, they felt that uh, some as black People that had worked for him had possibly done the crime, and they had one gentleman that they felt probably had more to do than anybody. And so they contact. They didn't have enough evidence, so they contacted the U.S. Marshal at Paris, Texas, and they asked for help. And so the marshal sent Bass to Houston, Texas, in 1896, and he went down undercover. Uh, I think it was Jim Underwood was the name he he took and uh, he went down and was placed in jail with this gentleman. And uh, he told the gentleman that uh, he, had, he had murdered somebody in Indian territory. And so the Houston authorities didn't have enough evidence, so called the whole both of them. And so they kicked them both out of jail at the same time. And so Bass con convinced this, this convict to go with him. And so they traveled in 1896 for three months to uh, Dallas, Indian Territory, Shreveport, Louisiana, and Marshall, Texas. And Bass was able to get a confession from this guy that he actually had committed the crime and testified against him in trial in Houston. And he was convicted of the, of the crime. And uh, that was the first time I've ever seen Bass do anything like that. But that was a three-month case where Bass went with this guy. <laughs> you know, he was he was getting monies, I guess, for his travel expenses from uh, the Marshall in Paris, but he was with him for three months in 1896 and was able to get the confession that he had actually murdered this man in Houston, Texas. That's a very interesting case. One more brief break. We'll be right back. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And we have returned once again. So during his time as a lawman, he was married had a family, and one of his children got into some serious trouble, his son, Benny. Right. What did Benny do, and how did Bass Reeves handle it? Yeah, um, Bass served for the Fort Smith Court uh, from 75 up to 93, and then he was with the Eastern District of Paris, where he basically worked in the Choctaw and Chickasaw Nations from 93 to 97, and then in 97, he was transferred to the Northern District. Uh, they had opened up courts in the Indian Territory at that time. And so he was at the Northern District, which was stationed at Muskogee. And his son uh, lived in Muskogee at that time and got married. And his son uh, and his wife evidently didn't have a good relationship. And his son was very jealous. And she was fooling around. And uh, Bass's son killed her. He shot her. and. The marshal, Leo Bennett at, at Muskogee, had a warrant for his arrest, and Bass found out about it and told Leo Bennett he didn't want any of the other deputies getting hurt bringing in his son and to give him the warrant. And so his son was still there in town. He was in Muskogee, and Bass took the warrant and uh, went up to the house where Benny was and told him he didn't want to kill him and to give himself up. And uh, his son did so, and he was convicted of murder, and he was sent to the Leavenworth Prison, federal prison in Kansas at that time. And I think he spent 11 years in prison before he was able to get out, uh, Benny. And he got out and came back to Muskogee and was a barber in the town. But, uh, yeah, Bass arrested Benny for murder, his own son. Bass arrested the minister that baptized him uh, in Muskogee also. In 1906, the minister was selling illegal whiskey because the church had got 
behind in, in some payments they had to make. And the congregation told him it was okay for him to sell whiskey, but it didn't fly with Bass. And so Bass arrested his minister. That, that's a guy who, who takes the law seriously. Right. Yeah, interesting thing about Bass Reed is that he was probably the greatest gunfighter in the Wild West. Uh, he had a lot of gunfights. He was, you know, he's a deputy's marshal for 32 years. And uh, if you got in a gunfight with Bass, it was almost tantamount to committing suicide because he could shoot so well. The main guns they used in the territory was the Winchester rifle. They would have pistols also, but uh, the Winchester rifle was the main weapon they used in the territory. And Bass was just surgical <laughs> with a Winchester rifle. But he also carried two pistols, uh, generally, when he, he walked. Later in his life, as Shubud had told me, when he was in Muskogee toward the end of his career, he did have a sidekick who would carry a satchel full of pistols. I guess, you know, Bass got tired of carrying all that hardware on him. And so uh, he did do that. And uh, he also, after he became a city policeman, you know, 1916, I'm sorry, November 16, 1907, the Indian Territory became the state of Oklahoma. And uh, Bass became a city policeman, and he held that down for almost two years. And uh, that was when he had a beat downtown Muskogee, and they said not a crime was ever committed on his beat during that time period. He used to like to brag about that. But he was a very colorful guy. He liked to tell jokes. He liked to laugh. He liked to brag about what he could do. I guess he was kind of probably like Muhammad Ali to a certain extent with that. But uh, he was a celebrity in the Indian Territory. And uh, doing my research, I found out they were singing songs about Bass Reeves, white people and black people in the Indian Territory. So he just had that much celebrity uh, in the Territory. And... Uh, it's just, it was just strange to me when he died, he, you know, he just kind of, uh, they kind of forgot about him. But uh, statehood, you know, Jim Crow came in and a lot of things that African-Americans had done was totally forgotten about or, you know, pushed to the curb, marginalized for the most part. Yeah. You point out in your book that the racism in Oklahoma got worse, not better. Right. Yeah, and actually, there's uh, uh, a place where Bass uh, and a, a white deputy had to go arrest uh, quite a few people for uh, rioting in a town named Braggs, and they brought everybody into Fort Smith. Yeah, it was about 27 people, him and this other deputy. The two of them arrested, just the two of them, you know. But uh, that's kind of sad, you know, looking at the racial aspect of what happened, but it didn't deter him from doing whatever he had to do. And he, he arrested white people on up till around 1905, for sure, a couple of years before, you know, he, he quit. And so that was just kind of phenomenal that he arrested anybody, black, white or Indian, who broke federal law. And he was very, very good at doing that. Now, he was noted, somebody stated that he didn't want to arrest white people because there's too much problems. But I was able to look at the official records and documents and seeing that he was still arresting white people up until the middle of the first decade of the century, which was quite interesting. A lot of the arrest bass made also too many times the Indian police would arrest people and they would hold them for the deputies. And so bass had a good relationship with the light horse police and the Seminole light horse police or the Cherokee police. And he would arrest uh, felons that way that the Indian police were holding because they couldn't arrest them. They could hold them though, but they couldn't arrest them. But they would hold them for the federal authorities to come in and take. So I want to ask you about the Lone Ranger, the comparison made between Bass Reeves and the Lone Ranger. Well, I was the person actually that put that out in my uh, biography on Bass, Black Gun Silver Star, that I wrote. Um, after I wrote my first book, uh, Black, Red, and Deadly, Black and Indian Gunfighters in Indian Territory, I thought about uh, Bass and the Lone Ranger. Uh, the Lone Ranger handed out silver bullets. Bass handed out silver dollars. 
Bass was mandated to have a posse man with him, at least one at all times in the territory. Many times his posse men were Native Americans, were Indians. Uh, Bass worked in disguise on a regular basis, like the Long Ranger did. Uh, many times people didn't remember Bass's name, they just called him the Black Marshal. Bass was, was, was known throughout the territory and what the thing that really kind of caught my my eye was that the Lone Ranger story came out in 1932 in Detroit, Michigan, on the radio station. Bass, the majority of the prisoners that he arrested while he worked for the Fort Smith Federal Court, was sent to Detroit House of Corrections in Michigan. So it was very easy for the prisoners to talk to their lawyers. The gentleman that owned the radio station in Detroit was a lawyer. And so he could have very easily had contact with some of these lawyers who were interacting with these criminals, hearing about Bass Reeves. The Lone Ranger's name, he only had one name in the fictional story, it was Reed, very close to Reeves. I could not prove that was the, the case scenario, but Bass Reeves is the closest person in real life to the Lone Ranger character, fictional character. Um, there was actually one professor out west named Dick Ravitch, and he stated that when he was in college, he had heard a presentation by somebody in the family from the Lone Ranger fictional story on the radio, and they stated they were aware of this black man from Oklahoma who was very similar to some of the uh, characteristics of the Lone Ranger. Uh, but when, you know, when they did the story, they didn't say that, you know, the 1932 was probably at the crux of the zenith of racism in the United States. And so they would never lose the fact that the Lone Ranger was derived from a black lawman on the Western frontier. But we can, you know, if we look at it, it's, 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 it's right there, you know, the various aspects of uh, the Lone Ranger. Bass stood for true justice and American way of life, like the Lone Ranger did. So. I, I, I think there's something to it. Sure, sure. There's a descendant of, of Bass Reeves playing in the NHL right now, right? Uh, they claim it, but we can't prove it. We do know that there's a, uh, like, uh, great nephews and nieces, but there's we have not been able to locate a direct descendant of Bass Reeves, even though he had 11 kids. Many of his kids died before he did. And there was one out of wedlock that died in the 1930s in, uh, in Missouri. But uh, we haven't been able to find any direct descendants for sure. That gentleman who plays hockey up in Canada goes by the name of Reeves. His family claims that they could be related. I, I talked to some family members, but it's like an oral history, but they have nothing concrete that can prove that connection. As yet, they may get something, but they haven't gotten nothing as yet, as far as I know. So he was buried in an unmarked grave, right? They don't know where he's buried. They did find a book that stated he was buried in a cemetery in Muskogee. But where that location is, is totally separate from where I was told he was buried. Uh, so it's, it's you'd almost see me. I mean, he, it's a couple of places he could have been buried in Muskogee. There's no grave site yet been found, and there's no tombstone that's been found, which is remarkable being his celebrity he had before he died that people don't know exactly where he's buried now. Uh, so we talked just briefly about this new television series coming out in November about Bass Reeves. Yeah. What, what have you heard about it? What are your thoughts? Well, I've seen the... Uh, uh, you know, the uh, trailers for it somewhat. One trailer kind of uh, was very interesting being that uh, his wife is holding off a group of Ku Klux Klan at our house in Arkansas. And that's not historically correct at all because uh, the Klan was destroyed in the late 1860s in Arkansas by the Arkansas State Militia led by Daniel Upham. And Daniel Upham later became Bass Reeves' first marshal that Bass worked for. So 
there there was no Ku Klux Klan in Arkansas at that time. So I don't know. You know, I guess it's a good theatrical thing to put uh, the Klan in the film, but it's totally incorrect. And it looks like uh, they have the deputies going in the field without pack horses or pack mules, and that's totally incorrect also. Um, I hope they do a, a good job. I'm sure it may be popular. The actors are very good to have in the series, but I think the historical veracity probably would be a little bit uh, meager in terms of the real history. I, I just say the series would definitely help people become familiar with Bass's name and his, and his, uh, his career in terms of what he able to accomplish. So that's good. Yeah. I would love to see an epic movie on Bass Reeves, myself personally. Yeah, I, he, he's one of these guys who, who, who had a life that was just so fascinating. You know, why embellish? Why make things up? You know, there's, there's no need to fictionalize his life. Right, right. Yeah, because you, here you make a, 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 a theatrical thing and you don't include real people's names. You make up names for people that work for Bass. And uh, the Fort Smith is very interesting. You know, the majority of uh, the people who worked for the Fort Smith Federal Court were African-Americans up until around 1885. And I doubt they show that. Uh, Judge Parker's private bailiff was a black man, uh, George Winston, up until 1893. So but uh, I don't know if they're going to show any of that at all in this series. Yeah. So uh, people can connect with you through your website, find out more about you and your books. Right, right. My website is artburton.com. Uh, just small, A-R-T-B-U-R-T-O-N.com. Uh, and I'm also on uh, Facebook where I put quite a bit of historical information. Uh, people want to read that. But yeah, my, my website and then my books are all on my website. And I, I'm uh, a contributing editor to True West magazine. I write quite a few articles for them. Also, have written quite a few articles for Wild West magazine. And so I stay in the West <laughs> pretty much on a regular basis, even though I, I live in Chicago. Um, my mind, part of my brain is in the West all the time. And it was strange when I, I grew up on the fictitious West, the Hollywood West. And when I got to doing the real research in the late 1980s, I had to travel back to the real West, which is totally different than what Hollywood presented. And so um, that's where my uh, mind stays quite a bit these days and, and continue to do a lot of research. I've written about uh, Buffalo soldiers. I've written about the scouts and other lawmen, uh, Native American lawmen and outlaws. And I recently wrote a book on Cherokee Bill who was a uh, black Indian outlaw of the Indian territory and was probably the most famous outlaw of that era in the late 1890s in the Indian territory. Very interesting. Well, I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it being on your show. Uh, and I uh, hope people can uh, read my books on Bass Reeves. I think he was the greatest frontier hero in American history. And uh, hope they find him fascinating as I did. Yeah, yeah. People think Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, uh, Wild Bill Hickok, even. Right. But but they certainly were not career lawmen. Right, right. Yeah, I, there was an old guy in his nineties when I was doing my research in Oklahoma. That told me that Wyatt Earp couldn't have been a patch on Bass Reeves' pants, which I thought was kind of humorous <laughs> at the time. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I think Bill Fan Bass is a uh, figure on his own. He was a phenomenon of the period of that era. It's also very interesting. The day he died, uh, which was January the 12th, 1910, the brightest comet of the 20th century appeared in the sky, which is kind of uh, a benchmark, I guess, you know, a, a good sign that there's something special that happened. Right, right. Oh, b before we go, I, I forgot to ask you about this. How many men did Bass Reeves kill over the course of his career? 
Well, at the time he died, majority of the newspapers stated he had killed 14 men in the line of duty. But there were half a dozen newspapers also that stated he had killed more than 20 men during his career. And so I would probably veer toward the 20 plus, possibly. We don't know exactly how many he killed. The Indian Territory is the most dangerous place for deputy U.S. Marshals in the history of U.S. Marshal Service. Uh, over 130 died in the Indian Oklahoma Territories. And uh, the, the worst killing field was a 50-mile radius of Muskogee. And so it was very dangerous. And I think Bass probably had to do what he had to do to stay alive. And so, you know, I think he probably killed 20 plus. And all of the men he killed, with the exception of the cook, were outlaws, right? Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, once again, thank you. Okay. Very good. Again, I have been speaking to Art T. Burton. He is the author of Black Gun, Silver Star, the life and legend of Frontier Marshal Bass Reeves. Again, this has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.